Today's episode contains adult themes and is not suitable for children. This episode contains many topics which may be triggering to some, including but not limited to sexual assault, suicide ideology, domestic violence and war themes. Listener discretion is advised. Today's guest left his family in Brisbane in 1969 to serve in the Vietnam War as a member of the Australian military. During his term, he dealt with attacks by the Viet Cong and during one of these attacks, his pit hole collapsed on him, burying him alive. Returning to an unsympathetic Australia, he started reliving his experience night after night, dealing with anxiety, depression and alcohol. During a six-month trip to the USA and Canada, he had suicidal thoughts. Over the next 33 years, he moved a lot for work and hid his PTSD well from all but his family, preferring isolated work postings such as Antarctica. A few hours after he arrived at Casey Station, he slipped on ice, sustained a severe brain injury and was medevaced back to the mainland. Episode 90, Dave Morgan. Welcome to One Moment Please, the podcast where our guests take a moment to tell their stories of how they've overcome adversity to achieve success, and you take a moment to tune in, so bring on the inspiration. Okay, perfect. Well, welcome to the podcast, Dave. Thanks, Fiona, for having me. Um, I'm excited. You're my first um, Vietnam vet that I've had on. I've had other uh, military veterans and I am excited to have a chat because I think it's obviously very different era and different experience um, between the generations and, yeah. and so forth and particularly the the reception afterwards. So I am interested to, to have a chat with you. And you have written a book, Invisible Trauma, which was out this uh, this July, year. July, it came out, yeah. Right. Um, right. That's my third book. Yeah. Um, my, I know you're starting to, to build up a quite a – is it database is the wrong word, but what's the portfolio, I suppose? Probably portfolio. Yeah, I didn't think I was a writer. I, only, I started writing probably because of my um, PTSD. It helps me uh, mm-hmm. by writing things down, and uh, that's how I got into writing. So. So it does it how does it help you writing writing things down is it the is it from a memory point of view or is it just sort of more cathartic for you Yeah pro- probably getting stuff out of my brain helps me yeah. by um either talking about it uh, or writing it down for many years um after coming back from Vietnam I I wouldn't want to talk about anything you know and um that's not good keeping it in your brain. So that's how I started writing. Um, only about uh, 2010 when I started writing about things and talking about things. Well, you mentioned um, obviously you started writing post-Vietnam War. So let me t- let's take you back to that point in regards to how you arrived to be um, serving. Yeah. Was it? Was it conscription? Was that how no, you were? I was a regular boy. Uh, I better oh. tell you a bit about myself first. Um, I was born in Melbourne, 1948, March, and uh, I was, came into the world after my twin brother. He was seven minutes. So that seven minutes is in, important as, uh, as years later. later. Um, 
we soon discovered our father had died before um, before Don and I were born, uh, about six months. And wow. uh, did I you find a, out how? Oh, just grew up, you know, um, without a father. So I had an older brother, ten years older, and a sister eight years older. And he was uh, my father was a merchant navy man, and and he had served in the first and second world war. And after the second world war, he came um, came back to Australia, settled in Alice Springs, and uh, him and mum was running the uh, local hotel and the only cafe in town. And uh, he uh, he died unexpectedly. So he actually took all the money with him because he owed a lot of money. So we, uh, poor mum and the family became poverty over to, overnight. And um, we, my mum to survive had to work in those days, there was no handouts. So, um, so as a kid, we shifted around Australia a fair bit. My mum was a hairdresser. She did that by trade. Um, she cleaned, did a lot of cleaning, washing, ironing, and all those things, and even a cook. So we travel. We travelled around Australia a fair bit. Hmm. From uh, summers, I started my school years in summers at primary school. Uh, that's in Victoria in the Mornington Peninsula. Mornington Peninsula. Peninsula. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know and, that area well. Yeah. Um, then we shifted to Mildura for work. And then from Mildura, she went back to Alice Springs. And um, I remember living in a tin shack in Alice Springs with no floorboard. So that's what the conditions, the living conditions, what we got used to. And a tin shark, extraordinarily hot. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> unbelievable. Um, yeah. I remember going down the hill uh, or down the road to get some water in a bucket of water. That's We weren't even connected to plumbing and we stayed in that tin shack for a couple of months before we shifted to a, uh, a caravan. Um, so they are the living conditions we um, were living in in Alice Springs and... Um, then we shifted to South Australia. Uh, Mum became a cook and on a farm, helping um, a, um, a family um, as a cook. Um, and then we shifted from Balaclava down to Tassie for a couple of months and then back to, to Echuca. Uh, so we stayed in Echuca for quite a few um, few years. Um, think about um, from 1957 to 1964 and I finished my primary school there and went on to um, uh, high school, started high school there. But um, my mum came pretty sick in in Echuca and um, um, she had very bad lungs or bronchitis and the doctors advised her to... um, moved to a warmer climate and um, so we the family belonged to legacy legacy helped veterans families um, mm-hmm. uh, so legacy was a great help so they helped us move from Echuca to a little place called Cloundra on the Sunshine Coast here so 
And so we shifted to Cloundra and um, I actually finished my high school up at Cloundra before I joined the Army. So what was the catalyst for joining the Army? Well, uh, Cloundra High School, actually my twin brother and I were the first lot of students to go through the um, Cloundra High School. Um, Cloundra High School opened in 1964 and um, Cloundra High School is on top of a hill and overlooks the ocean. Um, You can see the boats uh, going up down the coast and um, the first lot of veterans, um, Vietnam uh, troops, uh, Australian troops heading up to Vietnam uh, was, uh, was heading up the coast on HMIS Sydney and um, all the schools stopped and looked out of the classrooms and looked at as the ship moved up the coast and and I thought to myself gee I wouldn't like I wouldn't mind to be that um, be a soldier you know and one of their teachers um, belonged to the um, was in the CMF which was the citizen military forces he was a, and um, he was an officer at up at Nambour Royal Queen uh, Nine Royal Queensland Regiment, and um, I I thought I'd ask him I'd, I wouldn't mind to join the army, and he said, oh well, why don't you join the CMF? He, he said, how old are you? And I well, I was seventeen at the time. And I, last year at high school. So um, I said, yeah, I'll do that. So I joined the CMF 9 Royal Queensland Regiment in 1966, at the beginning of 1966. And uh, I just found uh, the CMF was a wonderful life. I was not much good at school. I was a very lazy student. Uh, I was probably more like a dreamer. I was dreamt of adventure. And um, I was unlike my twin brother, who was more ap- academic than me. He was he's quite brainy, and um, so I used to str- I struggled at at schooling. I uh, joined the CMF and I loved every minute of it. And uh, uh, about six months, uh, halfway six months after I joined it, I asked Mum, "I want to quit school and join the arm- army." And she said, "No, you go and finish it." finish your schooling, which uh, I struggled. I was also interested in flying. So I um, decided to do a bit of flying. You, you probably asked, asked me, well, how, how was I getting the money? Well, I, had, I worked at, at the weekends um, as, a milk, uh, as a milk boy, milkman delivering milk. And um, on school holidays, I would do that. And also I'd... Um, be a postman um, or telegram boy during the day. So I'd work the milk run at night uh, on school holidays and during the day I'd go and do the telegram or become a telegram boy to get some pocket money. Or I used to earn a bit. I soon found out money run out soon. Um, <laughs> didn't have enough Fine's money. Fine's expensive. Yeah, of course it was. <laughs> yeah. So... We were members of Legacy, so I asked my legatee if he could help me to fly, and he took me down to Brisbane to Legacy House, and 
I fronted a leg of tea and he said, oh, no, you go back to school and finish your schooling and um, get an education and then join the Air Force. That, that wasn't for me. So I, I went back to high school and I, at the end of 66, so I thought, oh, this is no good. Uh, I definitely want to join the Army. So I fronted my mum again and she said, she said, okay, you can join the Army. So Dave, why, why the Army? Why did you not join the Navy, which you've got a family history with? Couldn't swim. Oh, okay. Fair <laughs> I enough. Couldn't swim. That's yeah. fair enough. My my yeah. pop was in the Navy for World War Two, yeah. and he said yeah. he joined the Navy because he hated mud. That's yeah, all. yeah, I couldn't <laughs> swim. And my, my older brother, he actually was in the Navy. He joined the Navy, but um, oh, I just couldn't swim, and always thought, oh, if the if if the boat sank, I couldn't swim. So yeah, I um, thought the army was the perfect armed forces for me, and. My plan was to join the army and eventually apply to be a um, join the air corps in the army. So, but um, that never that never came. So, um, so I joined the army in 1967 in July 1967. Uh, so, um, and they sent me to Kapuka. I was already trained. Uh, because I spent one half years in the um, citizen military forces, so I was uh, I was already trained. But the army said, "No, you have to go and do rookie training down at Kapuka." So that's why I ended up going to Kapuka. I loved every minute of it. So um, so we went down to Kapuka and uh, spent three months there, and then I got. I asked for the um, signal call because I was some I was fascinated with radios. Also, <laughs> when I was a kid, I used to make radios. Little um, used to make them. In those days, uh, we'd put little batteries and connected with them microphones and all that. So I actually got interest in radios. So um, so I applied for the Royal Australian Signal Corps and I got it. So how old were you? So I was in the CMF from the age of 17 and I went into the Australian Regular Army at 19. So so I got the Royal Australian Signal Corps and um, and they sent me down to Belcom, did, did our training down there in 1968 uh, at the School of Signals. But unfortunately for me, I was, um, this is my first traumatic experience at the, while I was uh, at training or at the end of the training period as uh, I was a sci-fi operator learning codes, how to decipher and enco- um, encoding codes, I was um, sexually assaulted by a, um, a senior um, senior personnel and um, that, that affected me very much. Um, I probably, uh, it's in the book, I, I prefer not to talk about it so um that's fine so that had a very bearing on my um um turned out to be a, a very traumatic event mm. i keep asking myself why me and um and um so i had that 
I probably had PTSD uh, or they didn't know it at the time, but I virtually had a PTSD before I got posted to Vietnam. And um, uh, I got um, posted to 139 Signal Squadron up in, in Nogra in Brisbane. And uh, that was a reinforcement unit to Vietnam. So I knew I was going to Vietnam as soon as I uh, got posted to um, 139. And Dave, what were your feelings about if you if you knew you were going over because of the unit that you went into? I'm interested to know pre going over there, what were your feelings about heading over? Excited, very excited. Okay. I wanted, yeah, I wanted to serve my country. Um, yeah. Never thought about any danger. It's just um, just excitement, uh, adventure. Uh, I've never been out of Australia before, so it was all big one adventure with excitement. And mm. um, but my posting nearly fell through. In the meantime, my twin brother decided to join the Australian Army. He joined the Australian Army with a mate, and I never ever thought he he was never interested in the army. He was more academic than me. And it came a shock to me. So he joined the Australian Army um, when I was down in Balcom. And um, he did his rookie training down at, uh, at Kapuga also. And mm-hmm. he got the um, medical corps. And um, he did his training at Hillsville. He was about six months behind me. But when I got up to 139... Signals Squadron. Uh, he was just about finishing uh, his core training. I had after six months um, at one three nine. By the time I went through Kanangra and training for pre- preparation for Vietnam, um, my twin brother got also posted to Vietnam. Well, well, my poor mum heard about that. Well, she was devastated. And um, we couldn't understand at the time, but what mothers go through. Mm. She went off to see her local um, member of parliament here in Cleandra, and he said, the member said to mum, he would go down to Canberra and bring it up in the next session of parliament. This is 1968. And remember I said the seven minutes difference? Yes. My twin brother was born seven minutes before me. So the parliament brought up, they realised they had made a mistake that they had brought in a law that no member of the same family would go to a war zone at the same, to- at the same time or served on the ship or on any ship at the same time. It was brought, this was brought about the HMAS Voyager sinking when it hit the Melbourne and there was a few fa- family members on the Voyager that lost their lives. So they brought in a law that no one would serve on the ship at the same time or go to a war zone. So they said, all the Defence Department said, well, what's the, who's the oldest twin? So they said uh, Don was the oldest twin. So he was told he would go to Vietnam and they had can- they cancelled my posting to Vietnam. 
And I was pretty devastated, absolutely devastated, because I I thought to myself, well, I had joined the Army before Don. I had always had my dream to go overseas, and my dream had just, just went shattered. This is this was about October 1968, all this happened. And um, anyway, I sort of accepted it. I went in on leave at the end of 68, just before Christmas, and my twin brother was there. And about a couple of days before Christmas Day, we both get telegrams. I opened my telegram and they said, you are to, you're posted to Vietnam, you're to report down at Ingleburn, New South Wales in, on January the 1st, 1969. And my twin brother opens his telegram, your posting to Vietnam has been cancelled, you to report up to Laverick Barracks in Townsville. So he ended up being shattered and I, I, was, I was the happy one. But in, in the end of the day, he got the lucky, uh, he, was, he was lucky and I was the unlucky one because as the story goes, what happened to be in Vietnam. So mm. he was disappointed, but he carried on um, with his um, uh, life in the military he was okay with it after a couple of years. So, so tell me, you're heading over to Vietnam. Yeah. Are you heading over on a on a ship? No. Or are they no, flying left, you in? I left my family on um, uh, Brisbane. I went down by train down to Ingleburn, New South Wales. Preparation. You spent about a week in preparation, making doing wills and talking about Vietnam and and all that. I flew out on the seventh uh, of uh, January, nineteen sixty nine. January nineteen sixty eight. By Qantas, we were mainly rel- relief troops replacing other troops. Um, I was I was with the Signal Corps, so I was I was posted to one hundred four Signal Squadron at Nui Dat. Uh, so I flew there. I was in Vietnam for the next 12 months, but I had a horrible time in Vietnam. I was a sci-fi operator and they used to put post me, uh, I was at different fire support bases. Now, what is a fire support base? Yeah, they they erected these fires or uh, erected these fire support bases. They were surrounded by jungle areas and uh, a clearance and you'd have a command post like an armoured command vehicles or APCs, gun pits all around the perimeter and um, and troops inside. And you'd send troops, um, uh, patrols uh, virtually out in the same area um, doing clearance patrols or on, on operations. Um, so um, the main infantry battalions are out on operations while the command is inside the fire support bases. And we'd also have artillery inside the fire support bases and they'd fire out where the enemy positions are. So that's... Um, I I spent the first, say, four months out, mainly out at fire support bases, um, working in a command vehicle with radio or communication equipment. And, um, and I slept in a pit hole, which is a hole in the ground, probably body length, um, my size, 
um, and coverage like heavy sandbags above me, built above me. They'd have all these pit holes all around, scattered around the areas for uh, the troops to sleep in. And um... Dave, the first time you hopped in one of those pit holes, the way that you described it, mm. it would feel like you've sort of, does it feel like you're sort of sleeping in your own burial hole, so to speak? Like if it's a length of your body and it's a well, few feet deep. Well, you've just hit it on the and... head. Yeah. I was comfortable. I was comfortable at first. I was okay. I was okay. The guns would, um, at the fire sport base, um, I had a te- terrible experience there. The enemy would come in. They knew that the enemy knew where we were, the VC. They had tunnels everywhere. We'd send out patrols every night to, uh, before sunset. We'd send our clearance patrols. I was on a few of these patrols. At the forest board base, not only had to do your own duty, I spent 12 hours in the command vehicle. As soon as you come out of the command vehicle, you probably have two hours off, then they'll put you on a um, gun pit duty uh, on the perimeter. This is during the night. Then they'll give you four hours off, and then you go go to your pit hole, have a sleep. Then you go back on the gun pit duty, so you're virtually working 16 hours a day with small breaks, and this would go on for at each fire small brace, you'd be at there for about a month uh, on operation. And uh, it really tiring, absolutely ex- exhausted. And it's with the heat, sweat, and um, uh, you'd have the odd shower. Uh, so it was very, uh, it was a terrible hard life. And, and, um, I was only tw- 20 at the time. And anyway, um, the, vet C, the VC would come during the night and hit us with mortar shells and um, small arm fire. And um, uh, at this particular fire sport base, I was at Julia. The fire sport base was called Julia. I came off at midnight from the armoured command vehicle, exhausted, and I went down into my pit hole to I had a sleeping mattress down there and I just went out to it. Next thing I was I woken up with this loud explosion. It's it's was a terrifying explosion. And next thing I was buried um buried and I couldn't breathe. So what had happened, the VC came in, uh, fired a few mortar shells and one of the mortar shells landed uh, just beside my pit hole and the whole pit hole collapsed and buried me. As you said earlier, it would feel like a burial site or your mm. grave. That's what I felt. I woke up and I couldn't breathe. And um, and that's my nightmare to this very day. Um, so I discovered it felt like I was, it felt like a bad night. It was a bad nightmare, you know. And uh, I discovered that I was free um, from my knees and downwards. All the all the um, sandbags had fallen on top of me, but my legs were free. So I kicked kicked out with the adrenaline going. I kicked out. I managed to free myself, and um, I got st- scrambled out of my pit hole. And we were under heavy attack with with. Uh, tracer bullets flying over. So, by rightly, I should have should have stayed in 
in my pit hole, collapsed pit hole and didn't move out. So I decided to run from, from my pit hole to my nearest gun pit, and uh, which I shouldn't have done. I had my SLR with me and I jumped in into the uh, gun pit and there was two Australian soldiers there, uh, one I knew, and they thought I was the Vet Cong. Oh, no. I just appeared from the dark and I jumped in and I thought I was the Vet Cong. So they jumped on top of me and they were trying to get, get their bayonets out. So there was another trauma, uh, trauma experience. But it was a terrible trauma for them too because they actually thought I was the Vet Cong. So, and then they realised who I was. And I remember one bloke was called Brian and he yelled out and he was angry and he, he said, stupid. Um, swearing, stupid, bass, Morgan, you could have got your bloody throat um, uh, cut and all this. And anyway, um, it was a terrible experience and that's my nightmare to this very day. Um, but pit hole collapsing on top of me and then jumping into this gun pit. And um, and it was very, it was probably a traumatic experience for the, those two soldiers too. And... Uh, and um, after the event, dawn came on. I went to the uh, regimental aid post and I had scratches all over my face and I was a mess. And um, and they just gave me a couple of tablets and said, get back to, um, back to your duty. So that was, I had to live with that. Uh, that was with me all the time uh, for the next 12 months in Vietnam. I spent 12 months in Vietnam, but I also saw other terrible, traumatic, uh, terrible, terrible things. I saw two American soldiers on a convoy going from one fire sport to another. Uh, and um, I saw the two vehicles in front of me got blown up and two American soldiers got killed. So that was another experience, nasty experience. And um, so anyway, look, I survived Vietnam and... Uh, Dave, I just have a question. Mm. You mentioned that there were tunnels everywhere and certainly post-Vietnam War, we've sort of come to understand the extent of them. When you were over there, did you understand, was there any con concept of how extensive the tunneling system was from the Viet Cong? No. no, no, we didn't have any idea. We thought they, We thought there was tunnels but mm -hmm. we couldn't find them. The, the infantry boys were trying to look for them. They did find a few, but the major ones they never found, I, I don't believe. And there must have been tunnels around because um, that fire sport base, Julie, because we were looking at uh, the infantry were looking for them all the time. Uh, they would come into our fire sport bases. Um, I was posted to about four fire sport bases for four months, and they would hit us. Julie was the worst by far, and um, and they would just disappear. And the infantry couldn't find them. We couldn't find them. So we knew they were somewhere around, but um, but we couldn't find them. And um, so anyway, my my job after four months, so they sent me back to Nui Dat and um and I I I was became a um a sci-fi operator or 
a corporal. I was a corporal and they used to send me out on every, not every day, about every uh, three or four days a week, they'd send me out on on changing, changing codes to all the infantry battalions around the, and in outposts all around the, the Fook Tree province. So um, I used to travel by, uh, and I was like carrying dispatches all the time too. I'd travel by convoys, uh, Huey helicopters, Bell helicopters, go to all these these little outposts uh, where Australian troops were and and troops on on um, operations. So I used to change the codes every uh, every day. Every day those tri- uh, uh, codes would have to be changed. So um, so it's a bit. It was um, it was always full on. Or there was always danger. Because I'd be in a, a Bell helicopter, which was the most frightening experience. You'd be in a two-seater helicopter, and the pilot next to me, and I'm on next to him, and he'd be flying me around to all these little uh, outposts uh, where Australians are. I'd have to jump out, change their codes, give the um, dispatches to them, then go run back and hop in the um, Bell helicopter or the Huey helicopter, and this. Especially the Bell helicopters, there'd be at times you'd be flying just on top of the jungles, jungle, and so the troops, the VC, VC couldn't shoot at us. And by the time we flew over, we had already gone. But the frightening part, at times the artillery would be firing, and that would vibrate the air atmosphere. So the helicopter, the little Bell helicopter would be shaking like hell. Oh, my goodness. But those pilots, I my those pilots, uh, they were amazing pilots, uh, absolutely amazing pilots. But anyway, I, I survived Vietnam and um, I uh, spent my 12 months there and I came back on, came, flew out on the 7th of uh, January 1970 which was a great feeling coming back home after 12 months in Vietnam. I never knew why they brought us back, flew us back after midnight. Um, They always flew us back, always flew the troops back after midnight. I could never make that out. And I soon found out the reason why, because there was a nasty demonstration back in Australia the Australian public turned against us, the Vietnam War. The politics turned against the Vietnam War. While I was in Vietnam, you know, I think it was November before I came back, the world news broke that an um, a American platoon went into a small Vietnam village and, and murdered. Uh, I say murdered because they killed all the village, most of the villagers uh, raped, raped um, uh, with the women and killed, killed babies. And it was called the My, My Lai Massacre. Wow. 
I don't know if you ever heard that. No. And in 1968, November 1968, even before I went to Vietnam, that happened in November 1968, and it broke in the broke the world in the into the world news that this American um, platoon went into this village which was called My Lai and did this. It was a terrible thing. So when we got back home, all the Vietnam troops were painted as baby killers and um, war criminals and we were all painted. Uh, so uh, I believe the, they brought us back after midnight because of this. And um, it, I, I went to, on the first night, we brought us back after midnight. I got a, I got a taxi with a mate and we went into King's Cross and to book us into a hotel. And it was a pretty expensive hotel. Um, first hot share I've had for months, you know, or year. Um, and, um, and as we walked into the reception area of the hotel, um, there was a clerk behind the desk and he saw us, we were in uniform, um, a bloke called Bill and I, and we, he's just about to serve us and a group of Americans Tourists came in and they had all their fancy, they were on holiday, they were holiday makers, all fancy shirts. And um, and he said, he said, he pushed us aside, he told us, oh, step aside, I've got more important work to do serving these um, tourists than you. And um, we just looked at each other. Bill said to me, oh, let's go to another hotel. I, I said, I can't be bothered. So we waited, they, he served. He served the 12 tourists and then he served us. But he he had he didn't have any respect. He just um he hated and that was the reason, you know, he didn't like us. And he he preferred to serve the Americans, which came in after us. So had the nightmares already started at this stage as well, Dave? No. No, the nightmares didn't, but I had very high anxiety wherever I went. Um, I wasn't sleeping well, but I didn't have any nightmares at that stage. And the next morning, I woke up and I missed my flight. I was flying to Brisbane and Bill was going to fly to Melbourne to meet his family. And we get a taxi out to Mascot, uh, Sydney Airport, and... We hop out of the taxi. We're still in our uniforms and we see these nasty demonstrators. They saw us and they run towards us and they started abusing us and they had placards or they had all sorts of things. They they called us baby killers and um, more warmongers and all that. Um, And we felt threatened, so we ran into the terminal. And in the terminal... Um, there was another group, and as I got into the terminal, I felt a a spit um, on my face, and um, and uh, I realised a young female had moved forward and she had spat on my face, and <sighs> and I thought to myself, oh, I just that was really destroyed. Now I thought to myself, oh, I spent the last twelve months, what for? Um, you know, 
putting my life on the line every day of my life and uh, off the 12 months and here I'm treated like this. And I soon real, um, found out that all Australian troops that came back from Vietnam, a lot of them were throw, uh, spat at, uh, thrown pig's blood at and um, abused. And that sort of um, affected my mental behaviour and I became very angry and I questioned myself, why um, why should I be in the army when everyone treated us like as, as criminals? And I could, just couldn't believe it. And the uniform, everyone, if you was on the, in, in the uniform, most people just hated the uniform. So um, that, that I virtually, it affected me greatly and um, I became angry and then I started, started drinking and, um, and um, even when I went home, my mum knew I was a placid young boy or young man before I left war. When I came home, I was angry. I became angry. I had changed and um, I was different. And my mum even said, you've gone, change. I, I used to I just lose it. And uh, so I got posted back to Four Sig Regiment. I struggled there. I was a full corporal. Um, I was going for my sergeant subjects, which I did get one of my sergeant subjects. And, um, and, and I, I had a trunk all full of possessions under my bed at Wacol, which I was at Four Sig Regiment. And um, and I had all my memorabilia. I collected American uh, regimental stuff from the Vietnam War, from different American units in um, in my travels around these different outposts, which was controlled by Americans and got badges and their memorabilia, flak jackets and all sorts of things. And, um, and um, I had it under the bed and um, in a tr my trunk. And um, one day I came back um, from day duty to my barracks and my trunk had gone. I had it chained up to my bed, um, to my bed, but someone cut the chain and some bloke in the army had done that. And I thought, oh, gee, this is not for me. And with all this that's accumulated in my brain over time from the, the sexual assault at Balcom, the trauma from Vietnam, about three or four traumas in Vietnam I experienced, and the young lady that spat on me at the airport mm. and abuse from the public and someone knocking off my trunk, I thought, oh, the army's not for me. And um, I, I got transferred from from four SIG regiment into me, um, into my old unit to 139 SIG squadron. I was gonna head back to Vietnam again, but I chose not to, and I chose to get discharged from the um, discharged from the army. And um, and my commanding officer, he said, why you why get discharged? He said, you've made it. You, I can promote you to sergeant but I wasn't interested. I had to get out. I want to get out. So I left the army. I want to go into flying, had a restricted flying license. I had managed to get a restricted flying line, 
flying license when I was before I joined, got into the regular army. And remember, I told you that I had learning to fly. And my aim, I always wanted to be a um, pilot. So I I contacted my flying instructor at Rushidor Airport and he said, Yeah, come, we'll give you a lesson, we'll get you up to get your restricted flying license back. It's about two years after that, I came back from Vietnam. I got into to the Cessna, the plane that I was going to learn of relearn getting my license, and he closed the door. I had a, a flashback because the small, small plane inside the plane, mm. yes, small, but felt that I like I was in my the pit space, hole. Yeah. So I had to jump out. And so that finished my flying career. I couldn't get back into flying because it was a small space. And and I thought I was in a Bell helicopter or anything, everything re-triggered my Vietnam experience. So my flying days were finished. So I decided to um, join the Defence Department down in Melbourne. I got a job with the Defence Department in Melbourne in the um, communications section in the Department of Supply in Melbourne. I became a heavy drinker. I had no friends, became very lonely. I nearly thought about joining the rejoining the army um but i at the time there was still a demonstration about the vietnam war and i and i lost a mate who who was with me in vietnam and he was my best mate and he went back to vietnam and he was one of the last soldiers that got killed in vietnam so that played heavily on my mind too and um because i thought to myself I had let my mate down. I should never left the army. I should have gone and, you know, back. So that was heavy on my mind too. And uh, I want to, he was my best mate in Vietnam. Mm. And um, and I want to contact his mum and his dad. And I couldn't do that. And I thought saying, that was playing on my brain and and I was drinking heavily and um and and I was working in a crypt cipher center in the defense department which was no windows it was like a refrigerator a large fridge with the four walls in the cryptic center with top codes and all that and I, I felt I was suffocating every time so I thought I'll go back and rejoin the army but I got, I got a job offer. I applied for a job with the Brewer Meteorology up in Darwin as a communication in their communications section. So I decided if I went back to the Army, it wouldn't improve me. So I decided I'll take, get out of Melbourne and go to Darwin. And so I went, I joined the Weather Bro, the Brewer Meteorology. And um, that was my starting my journey with the Brewer Meteorology. And at that same time, I was starting having nightmares, um, reliving my nightmares. Um, so I was having, my first nightmare was in Melbourne and um, screaming out, I thought I was in a pit hole and reliving that dream, that what happened to me. So I left Melbourne, went to Darwin and 
I started drinking very heavily. Um, Dave, Dave, can I just interrupt you? Mm. What, what? I mean, you've had this trauma, mm. and I'm not a psychiatrist or psychologist, mm. so I, I don't have any mental health training. Yeah. Was there anything that triggered um, you to start having nightmares, or is it just a a way of the brain? It's a way of the brain. It's just a trauma. Yeah, it's a okay. trauma. It's a way. But things did trigger me, like getting into that. As the plane, plane and stuff. Um, yeah. Any planes that I hopped in, I would, any helicopters I could hear, it triggered everything. Mm. I'd have flashbacks, or uh, at night time, I'd have, I'd be sweat coming out in a sweat and they just pursed by. The, my whole bed would be full of damp or wet. And it was a trouble. And I, drinking wasn't helping me. So I was drinking very heavily. And I was getting into fights in the pubs in Darwin. And um, it's all in my book. I used to get in fights. And- That's very interesting. Mm. You hear that a lot. There's a lot of anger mm. um, and people get into fights. And it's a. Uh, why did you seek out the fights? What was it about you actively wanting to to to. To fight no somebody. one would, I didn't have anything in common with people, the public. I wasn't in common. I was so it was just an anger. So it was just yeah, a, like I was you know, a hair trigger, from like the public, right? And um, I never had anything in common with them. They didn't understand. No, people didn't understand me, and I didn't understand them. Even my mum picked up. You know, you know, she couldn't even relate to me. I was just angry all the time, and just I thought alcohol was helping me, and and. I, I used to mix with um, some of the ex-army boys that was who were was working up in customs up in Darwin. So I mixed with the um, ex-army boys that had been to Vietnam, and they were in customs or uh, different departments in in Darwin. And I had a couple of mates that were still in the army up in up in the Darwin. Uh, posted to Darwin, so I used to mix with them all the time. Never mixed with any any um, public servants. None of them met blokes, or hardly any had anything common with the blokes I worked with. So what happens? I mean, you're working at this stage for the Bu- Bureau of yeah. Meteorology, yeah. Bomb. Um, so I mean, how if you're rocking up with bruises on your face and scuffed and bloodied knuckles, are they saying anything to you? No, they th- probably thought I was a drunk. You know, just right. accepted that I was a heavy drinker. Different times, yeah. yeah. But uh, anyway, I I realised my life wasn't going anywhere up in Darwin and, and I only spent six months up in Darwin and I applied for a transfer back to Brisbane because I thought my life's not going anywhere. I'm not coping well up here. So I transferred back to Brisbane with the Bureau itself and the Bureau of Meteorology was very good they transferred me back to Brisbane as a weather assistant, or learning, helping the forecast or meteorologists helping to uh, plot their charts and sending out um, their messages and you know forecasts, sending on teleprinters and etc. and plotting charts and etc. So, um, but I really struggled. I struggled in Brisbane. I was with my family, which was a help in one way, but I was I was I was taking a lot of sickies, and the regional director in in the bomb at the head office in Brisbane, he he called me to his office and he said, 
for all the personnel in the in the forecast centre, you take the most sickies and you're becoming un, un, very unreliable. I'm a shift worker. I'm a shift worker. And he said, what, what's, what's causing all these sickies? And I said, I said, look, I'll t- tell you the truth. I'm struggling with life. I, I'm, I'm a Vietnam veteran. Well, he was a Second World War veteran. Oh, good. And he was the regional director. And he said, oh, Dave, he said, you take as many sick, sick as you like, mate. He said, I know what you're going through. Oh, and he was the first person that could relate to me. He, he said, if you ever want to have a talk anytime, uh, come into my office and have a chat. He said, I know what you're going through. So he was the first person that I real, who really understood me. And my sister, in the meantime, had married an American and she shifted to Portland, Oregon. Life wasn't going anywhere. Still, still drinking heavily, and I thought uh, I call it my lost years. So I decided to quit the weather bro and to go to America and visit my sister and travel around the, around America. And this is what I did. And this is 1975. I'm talking about 1975. Dave, I just. I just want to take you back to that conversation that you had with the regional director. Yeah. When you said this, it was the first person that got me, that understood that understood what I was going to, I, mm. I got goosebumps. Mm. How did that within yourself, how did that feel? Because you're, you're angry at the world, no one understands you, to have somebody to say, don't worry, mate. I, like I got it. Like I get it. Come mm-hmm. and talk to me anytime. Like, was it just like this huge weight off your shoulders, oh, or did it? It was. It was a very emotional moment because it, it yeah. felt that I was found someone with you know I was that understood me, and yeah. it, it felt like and a in the senior management. Yeah, yeah senior and, management especially too, yeah. he was the highest ranking uh, meteorologist. He was a meteorologist, and um, he was the highest ranking officer um, in in Queensland and he understood me and um, not many people could understand me or, or understand what was going on and in the meantime a lot of veterans went underground yeah. went underground disappeared um, that just just disappeared and and I decided to disappear virtually myself. And that's where I went to to America. America. Did you ever take him up on that offer for the chat? Um, to, no, 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 I didn't. I didn't because um, I couldn't talk about it. I couldn't talk about it. But he did understand what I was going through. And and that's why I can talk about it now because it's good to get talk about your trauma inside. And that's in my latest book. And... Anyway, I go to America and I go to see my sister. And my sister had been married uh, earlier um, to an Australian and he was bashing her up and she got divorced from him. And this happened when I was in the army and 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 she met this American sailor and she got into a relationship and she went over and married him. And when I got to Portland, Oregon, 
I, I stayed with my sister and she had two of her children with her and she left the two other children with the father who was brutal to, to the, not only her, but the children. It's a very sad, sad story. My sister had a very sad life. And I get to Portland, Oregon, and I discover my sister had black eyes, bruising all her <gasps> body. And, well, that was destroying. I get very emotional. And um, that really destroyed me. And then I thought, this is it. I can't take this. Seeing my own sister getting bashed, and uh, I decided to commit suicide. I'm sorry. Don't apologise. So, my, um, I decided to. Um, could you cut it for a while? Uh, I decided to um, get a train tip ticket, one way ticket, from. Um, Vancouver in Canada. I travelled to Vancouver. I decided to commit suicide. Um, I'd get a one-way ticket on the train to um, uh, Vancouver to Montreal in Quebec. And um, I'd bought a, bought a bottle of rum and um, I'd booked myself out on this train and I decided to... Um, um, get off at a siding. We'd go through the Rockies and this siding, I'd hop off the train on a little siding and I'd go into the, it was, it was about mid coming out of winter in America. It was about March when I took this train trip. I'd go into the, into the bushes up in the mountains somewhere sit under the tree, drink, drink the bottle of rum and, um, and wipe yourself out and freeze to death. So that was my aim. And um, Can I ask you something, mm. Dave? It's a very thought-out process. Why, why, why did you, what was it about that that appealed? I mean, I, Well, it was the easiest way. I thought was it was it? the okay. easiest way to do it because it's you, you drink a bottle, you flake out, you're out in, in no man's lane, under a tree, freezing condition, you freeze okay. to death and you'd be out to it. So that was my that was my um, plan. But I, um, I got on to the train. I had a sleeping compartment by myself and... Um, the first night, the train pulled up, going crawling up into the Rockies and uh, and stopped. And I hear my plan was, I came out of the, with my bag and um, with the, the brun rums in the um, bag, had my possessions. And I tried to open the, tried to open the carriage door, but it was locked. And I can see the big brass door to this very day. Oh, I'm getting frustrated. I'm trying to open it, but I couldn't get here. So I'll go back to my room and I'll say, I'll try it the next next day. And um, and anyway, I went down to the went into the carriage where the the next day I went up to the carriage where the viewing you can view the 
different country and beautiful. So I got, I got up there and I looked at the different countryside and it just hit me what beautiful looking at the trees and the beautiful, um, beautiful countryside. And it took, took me in and I th thought to myself, how stupid. Look at that beautiful country and looking at peace. I felt peace by looking out. And a couple of the young, there was a couple of other people, young travellers with me came up and sat sat beside me. Um, and they were on adventure like themselves. And we started talking. And um, and I thought, well, what am I thinking like this? Because people are friendly and a couple of young females or a couple of young blokes. And I thought, well, I'm, I'm, I'm okay. So why are you stupid doing this? So, and look at the world, look at the country. You can look, look at, go and have a look at the world. Don't. Wow. So nature saved you. So nature saved me and probably some good people or young people that got talking to me because I was very lonely too. So mm -hmm. started talking and they heard me accent. They, they wanted to know about me and learn. Uh, but I didn't tell them about oh, I was a Vietnam veteran. I just said I was an Australian traveling um, by myself. And that, they were very good people. And some some people said, oh, why don't you um, come and visit us? And I thought, how good. This is very friendly. And and nature really took hold of me. We got from, we left the Rockies. So I left that. We got onto the prairies, beautiful prairies. Uh, it just was absolutely magnificent country crossing from Van, from Vancouver uh, to Montreal. I landed in Mont Montreal and it was a beautiful city. So I eventually get on a bus going down to um, to New York City. I land in New on the bus early in the morning um, and then I get booking myself into a hotel. And then the city life, something that's too crowded and all that. And um, I go into the bar, go on the booze again. And that's my problem is the booze. And, um, and, and it's April the 25th. Well, no, it's April 1975. Some, I think it could have been somewhere around the 26th. Or, um, and I'm in the bar in New York City and I look up the bar I'm probably half drunk and, uh, and I'm seeing on the television, the Vietnam War had finished, had finished and they're pushing out all these helicopters and people fleeing Vietnam. The Vietnamese are fleeing Vietnam. Um, the troops are leaving Vietnam. They're pushing helicopters over the side and, and I'm at the bar and I break down. Because I'm, my mind is reignited, gone back to Vietnam again. I'm thinking about my mate Scotty that had got killed over there, and I'm saying to myself, "What a bloody waste of time! What for?" And I'm getting angry and angry, and then I'm drinking more and more, and and I go to me wallet to get some more cash out to pay for another rum, rum and coke. I love rum and coke. And I pulled some money out and something happened. A little piece of paper fell out and I look at it. I wonder what this uh, paper is. 
and it's a name of a soldier that I met in Vietnam, American soldier. And I thought, oh yeah, he was he was from Big Sky Country. I'd met him in on gun pit duty one night, and he was telling me about America and how beautiful it is and all that. So I'm looking at this. He lived in Billings, Montana. And so I decided, oh, I'll go and visit him and see how he's going. But if it doesn't work out, I'll go back to the Rockies and do what I did, what I was supposed to do. Because all this Vietnam War had finished and I'm getting angry and I'm back on the booze. So I get on a bus, I go back through Chicago, back through the States again to Montana. And I get off the Billings is on the road, the main road to main highway. So I get off at Billings and um, I go to this, um, go to this address. I'll get a taxi and go to the address. And um, and I knock at the door and I ask this bloke or this guy who opens the door, I said, I'm I'm looking for his name was Ron Casey. But what I'm saying, I'm looking for Ron Casey, mate. Does he live here? <laughs> uh, repeat, the, what's the name again? I said, Ron Casey, mate. He said, no, no, I'm sorry, uh, don't know him. So I said, oh, well, thanks very much. And I, the way, taxi was waiting for me. And at that minute, I had decided, this is it. I'm going to do myself in. I'll get on on the bus, get off at, in the Rockies somewhere and and do myself in, what, what I had planned. And, and I was just about to hop in and... The, this guy comes running out. He said, what's that name again? I said, Ron Casey, mate. He said, sorry, I don't know a Ron Casey, mate, but I know a Ron Casey. And I said, no, <laughs> that's the way Australians talk, mate. They call everyone mate. So <laughs> yeah, everyone's said, mate. So he paid the taxi and he was a young bloke. He was a young bloke like me, had about the same age, and his name was Bob. Feistand, and he had been, he was also a Vietnam veteran. So he didn't talk much about Vietnam. I didn't talk about, but I told him I was a Vietnam vet and I, he was a Vietnam vet. And he was into, he liked drinking and he liked partying. And so I ended up, uh, I ended up contacting Ron. He was living in Helena, Montana. And, um, and, so I was supposed to go the next day, but I ended up staying with Bob um, for over a week because I was having such a wonderful time and he was showing me, he was taking me around the um, Cluster's Last Custer's last Stand, all around the area, showing me the countryside and it reignited my love of living. I wanted to live. And um, so... After a week, I ended up going to Ron, and once again, they gave me a wonderful time. But but they discovered that I was a heavy drinker, and was st- sit, um, sitting in the pubs at the bars at the time. And they told told me and helped me motivate me to get back and start living, and um, um, and setting goals, setting goals for your life. 
So, uh, so this is what I did. The whole whole friends in Helen, Montana, they helped me. Um, they took me skiing. I got into more fitness. I think fitness was a great thing. Uh, cross country, country skiing, and and um, uh, they wanted. Me, they even got me part time work there. So anyway, after six months, I decided to go back to uh, go back to Australia. I visit my sister. She had not improved. Her her relationship had not improved. Um, I tried to help her, but she would not. Um, she was trapped. Um, mm. So anyway, I went back to Australia and I rejoined the Weatherbro and I went back to night school and studied and I applied for the um, meteorology ob observer course, which was successful. I had got my life back on track and, and I even met a young lady in the Brewer meteorology. She, she was in the clerical section and... Uh, uh, we had a pretty quick romance, uh, probably six months before we got married. So that was in 1977. I came back and um, I got my life back, got off the booze, was, which was the main thing. I got off the booze. and um, But I still had issues because Debbie, my wife that I married, um, discovered that I had nightmares and uh, had really violent nightmares. What I would be jumping out of bed every night, virtually, um, sweat and banging walls, banging walls and oh, just so aggressive. So I had that going and they sent me down to the um, meteorology school down in Melbourne and I soon found out that I had severe anxiety and every time I sat for exam, my whole body would shake and I would perspire. And in one of the tests, I'd have to go in to do a um, release a balloon, a weather balloon, track it by radar, and at the same time, use a slides rule to uh, use to work out the wind direction and speed. And that would that test would last for an hour. So they put me into a radar room and I'd release the balloon, which was okay. But as soon as the uh, track it by radar, I'd have to use the slide rule. And I couldn't do that because I was full of shakes. And I'm going, oh, I can't do this. I then decided to go to see a doctor, um, a GP, and I told about my condition. And he said, well, I'll send you to a psych psychiatrist, a doctor, and he may be able to help you. And this is the first time I've been to a psych, psych doctor about my mental um, mental um, health. And um, and I entered the room. He said, "I said I'm a Vietnam veteran. I said I'm having anxiety attacks, and I'm just wondering if you could give me a tablet to calm me down." And he said, oh, I've met a lot of you you veterans. I've let, met quite a few. Um, you need counselling. You need to go into a hospital, repat hospital. I forget the name of the hospital in, in Melbourne. I want you to go into the repat hospital in Melbourne. 
And um, and I said, no, no, I, I can't. I, I've got this, I got this course to do, which is a 12 months course, and I've got exams and I can't sit for this exam. I'll fail it. He was under very understandable. And he said, okay, what we'll do, I want you to come back every two weeks and I want to give you counselling service, you know, counselling, and I will put you on medication, but I want to keep seeing you. He said, you've got, you've got something wrong with you. You've got, they call it battle fatigue. He called it battle fatigue, but it eventually ended up as PTSD. It was became known as PTSD. So that was the first time I had seen a doctor and he gave me on medication, which helped me a lot. And to cut the story short, I did, I did pass the course and the tablets did calm me down. And by getting those tablets, I had to go and see him every two weeks and he would counsel me. And the course went on for 12 months. And, and you wouldn't believe the first posting got was to Ambly Air Force Base. I was quite excited because I felt I was cheated out of my military career and I was get, being sent back to a military facility, briefing pilots living in a military base. So that that was very, I was very excited. And there was another bloke with me on the course. His name was Don and we used to call him the grunt. And he had a, he had a similar... Um, story to me. He had also been Vietnam. He had joined that. He was very, he was ac very academic. He'd been to Vietnam. He was in the infantry. He was very academic, and he joined the Weatherbro and got on the course uh, like me. But the trouble with Don, he had the same problem like me. And on our breakup party, on the last day, we had a went to a barbecue. We all sitting around in a um, circle, uh, had a bonfire in the middle, and there was a one of the course members. He had his um, motorhome or had a, a van, and he had a girlfriend. He disappeared into his van. Some bloke had a big cracker. Uh, we didn't know it was this. So one of the course members had this big couple bangers, real big crackers, and he thought, I'll put this cracker under the bloke's camper van. Oh, no. And, and the camper van, while this, um, this one of the members and his girlfriend disappeared in the camper van, and as a joke. So he did lit this camper van, um, lit, lit the real large cracker, and next, boom. Well, that was the next thing. I had a major flashback. I I jumped to the ground, and I'm shaking to the ground. Poor Don Grunt, he took off, and he he climbed a tree, and he's screaming out, "Where's the VC?" And everyone's laughing their heads off. They're laughing at me because I'm shaking on the ground, and they're laughing at poor old Grunt. He's up in the um, tree yelling out VC and they thinking he's yelling out where's the VB the Victorian bitter cans yeah and so everyone thought it was a joke but it wasn't a joke and um that's that was another um you know 
bad flashback I had. Now, it took a while to get over that, uh, but no one understood, only Grunt and I. And poor Grunt, he got posted to me, uh, to Ambly, to me, and he was he was the um, officer's mess, but, but he didn't like the officer's mess, so he decided to go to the sergeant's mess. And... Um, because he felt more comfortable in the sergeant's mess. And I had married, I was living in a, um, a marriage uh, home in, in Ipswich with Debbie, my wife. So that helped me a lot. But poor Donnie, he couldn't, he couldn't relate to anyone. And we used to work shift work. And when I was in the Met office at the Ambly Air Force Base, he would come and sit with me uh, on the, his days off. Or he would talk, talk about his trips to Thailand. He used to go to trip to his trips to Thailand, and he's uh, he never talked much about Vietnam and about life in X. But he he had issues, very deep issues, and his main thing was he was very um, had very lonely and depressed. And I tried to tell help him. I said, "Come and." come to my place. He used to come to my place. We used to talk because he never had no friends. And um, I tried to tell him to go and, you know, join a club or get something, you know, help him. But he never did. He would. Anyway, I got transferred to Oki Aviation Base, did a stint there, uh, which was the Army again, which helped me. And, um, and then I got transferred to Longreach. And when I went to Longreach, I got notification that Don Grunt McLeod went to went to Thailand and he blew, he committed suicide. Oh no. He's he bought a shotgun and I won't say the rest. Yeah. So it it affected me greatly because I felt like I didn't do enough for him. By me being transferred away from Ambly, his only friend was me and he he had no friends, and as soon as I left, within 12 months, he committed suicide. So that was affected me greatly too. And although I wasn't drinking very much, I had I had really severe PTSD, and I was became angry and angrier. And Debbie, my wife, warned me she would leave me as she couldn't take my um, aggressive um, behaviour. I never. Never had was brutal to her because I saw what happened to my dear sister, and I was never um, aggressive to like that. But I had aggressive otherwise, like punching walls or turning up chairs or table, and that was very um, terrible for Debbie. So we had issues like that. I did go back to the doctor. She said, "Go and see the doctor." Yeah. So I went to my psych doctor, and he put me on medication, so which helped me. I got transferred to the relief pool. Um, I got a little girl got born while I was in the relief pool, uh, while I was in Cairns, actually. She was born in Brisbane, but, but I got a posting to Cairns. I went to, on a lot of postings within the Brewer Meteorology, Charleville ended up going to Charleville, where my son was born in Charleville. Uh, you also is, went to places like Antarctica as well. Yeah, yeah, that was coming down the track. So my daughter was born in 83, and then we got posted to Cairns, then from Cairns to, uh, to Rockhampton, then 
Rockhampton to Charleville. And I spent four years in Charleville, very isolated place, a little small country town, which was really good for me. I didn't like the city life. So my son was born in Charleville in 85 and then got transferred. I had different issues with the boss and so forth. Um, then I got transferred to Gladstone in um, uh, 1986 or 87. And then I became officer in charge of Gladstone. I got transferred to um, Rockhampton as a senior met, uh, observer there in charge of the observer observing program. And then we were briefing pilots. We had a military exercise at Rockhampton um, with the Singaporeans. They had were parking their helicopters near the Met Office, Meteorology Office at Rockhampton Airports. I was briefing one of the pilots when this helicopter flew way low over the Met building at the airport. I had a metal flashback and I thought I was in Vietnam. I collapsed, actually collapsed to the ground and uh, shaking. After that, I had a mental breakdown uh, and, um, and I couldn't get, go back to work uh, at Rockhampton. So I decided to go to, to the Giles weather station for six months, very isolated posting. Um, so I didn't want to shift my family because my children was in high school and they were at the important years of schooling and uh, I didn't want to move them out to another met posting. So I took the isolated, most isolated posting in Australia, which I became OIC at a Giles, a fireman station. So I spent six months out there and I found peace and quietness and beautiful nature um, in the Gibson Desert. And it's a beautiful area out by the Gibson there at the Gun Barrel Highway and all that. So I spent six months out there and then I come back and I think to myself, I, I can't work in Rockhampton. So I've de then decided I want to go to the, all these remote postings. So I ended up going, applying for the Antarctica and I was successful with Antarctica. But before I was supposed to, I got Casey Base, Antarctica. They was going to post me to Antarctica Base for a year. And just before I left, I got a hernia. And um, and the it was a bad hernia. And they operated on me. And um, they discovered part of my bowel was um, tangled with the hernia. So it became a major operation. And I didn't say anything to the Antarctica division, didn't say anything, because I knew they wouldn't accept me for the uh, expedition. So I kept everything quiet. But but a hernia operation's fairly extensive. And then if it's a if it's more intensive than from what you're saying with the bowel entanglement, yeah, yeah. you would have been in agony from a recovery. How did you keep that quiet? Well, I did. I, I had, I had about a month off from the Met office in Rockhampton. I didn't let, see, the main program, the head office for the Antarctica Division is in Hobart, so they wouldn't know what was going on. But, but someone must have leaked it out within the Bureau of Meteorology itself and leaked it out to the Antarctica Division. Because I get a phone doctor from the head, head doctor from the Antarctic Expedition and... Um, 
uh, and a head medical officer, um, or senior medical officer, and he he queried me that he he believed that I had a major operation, and I I lied to him, and he said he warned me that if lying, there's a um, uh, Commonwealth Act that he could charge me of lying. So I said I came out with the truth, and I said yes, I did have. Hang on a minute, he can charge you with well, lying. Well, he would report re- report me, and yeah. So this is was his warning uh, that there was a medical, uh, there was a Commonwealth Act that if you sign a paper, you are liable for, to be charged or something like that. And and I said, yeah, I did have an operation, but I'm okay now. And and if you don't believe me, I could get a medical certificate from my surgeon and my from my GP. And this is what I did, did. And he said, okay, I'll accept that. So I got down to Hobart to do the training. And on the first day on the um, training, the doctor that was going into Casey with me pulled me aside. He walked me to the um, senior medical officer, which was the bloke that was speaking to me on the phone. And he said, he was not happy for me to go down on the expedition, which was a 12-month expedition, and he would not take me. And he decided he refused to take me. So I lost my posting to Casey, and that was the beginning of the curse of the Casey story. And if you read my story, it was a, that wasn't the finish of the Casey curse. Um, so I went back home very upset, um, but I went back to back to my office, and um, there's the phone going. Um, sorry about that. That's okay. Um, I went back to the office, and six months later, I get a phone call from the Antarctica Division asking me if I wanted to go down to the to Macquarie Island for six months, and I jumped to it. I said, oh, that'd be great. Yes, I'll accept that as OIC of the MET program down on Macquarie Island. So what had happened, they had pulled the the officer out of Macquarie Island to replace me in Casey base for 12 months, but the person they pulled out from Hobart to Macquarie would only do a six, six months posting down on Macquarie Island. So they asked me to do the remaining six months at Macquarie. So I went in there as a summer expedition for six months, and which was so happy. It was, it was, I found a new life, peaceful, beautiful island, and um, n- nature. And uh, my PTSD, I was very happy. I, my mental um, problems sort of disappeared. And uh, I was so, like, I had found my what I wanted in life, and um, what. But the sad part about it, it was like a drug. I wanted isolation all the time, so I finished Macquarie Macquarie Island, and I actually nearly drowned at Macquarie Island. Oh my goodness! Yeah. So we. That's another story. So <laughs> there was a group of us took took out down supplies down the island and dropping them off. And when we got down to Herd Point, um, 
we got into a nasty storm, which is right at the end of the at the point end of the south part of the island. And um, there was three Zodiac boats, and I was in one of the Zodiac. Would travel be in a group? I was two in each Zodiac boat. The first Zodiac boat went into her point and was successful. These big waves. My Zodiac boat was the next one, and we. As we were coming into the beach of Herd, near Herd Point, our Zodiac boat flipped, flipped over, and the two of us, the driver, he was connected to the Zodiac, and he was attached by um, a safety cord uh, to the Zodiac boat, but I wasn't, and I was thrown out into the deep, deep swelling waters. Did you have a life jacket on? No, I had a floating a sort of a jumpsuit. Um, right. And um, I had sort of, this is it, because I went under the Zodiac boat and everyone, I could hear the blokes on top yelling out, we're screaming, where's Morg, which is my nickname, where's Morg? And yeah. I had disappeared. And everything, all my balaclava that I had on um, had slipped over my eyes and everything went dark and I had been trapped, and it brought back my Vietnam experience, yeah. um, trauma, and I, I had accepted this is it, this is my, this was my moment, and but something happened. The a next wave came in and pushed the Zodiac boat and pushed me out under the Zodiac boat and onto rocks. And we, do you know, Dave? This is a common theme in your story. There seems to be either however you want to say it, sependipitous, I don't even know if that's yes. not the right word. I'm afraid this is the but, story of my life. And yeah, but there seems to be know. like almost, uh, um, I don't necessarily want to say divine intervention, but there's, there's things that are happening mm. that are just at the right moment, like the universe is saying, yeah. hang on, Dave, like yeah. you're not meant to die. Yeah. <laughs> and then and we hit the um, the rocks and then our undercurrent takes us out again. And I'm saying, oh, this is it. And um, then another big wave, f- fortunately for us, pushes us into the main in the Herd Point Beach. So we are saved. It ends up on, on the beach itself. Cal, the other bloke, he was actually, he was blood all over him. I had blood on, on me. So... Um, we are saved. We are on the beach. Very shaken. It was a terrible experience. The third boat comes in, and that gets flipped to, flipped to, and but it's fortunately for them, the third sailing back. It is swept straight into the beach. So we we had lost, we had lost all our equipment, all our gear. Rocks we had picked up from from ge- different geologist teams on the island and our supplies that we were um, that we were supplying the hut at Herd Point we had lost all that so we um, we uh, had we had one decent zodiac we had two zodiac boats that was okay our zodiac boat was completely wiped out it was flat it was ripped up. And um, we had lost all our radio equipment. We couldn't connect. We couldn't radio communicate back to the base itself. 
which is up uh, on the top of the north part of the island. We couldn't communicate. So um, we decided to um, use the two remaining Zodiac boats, which we were fortunate. Ours was it wiped out. We made a plan that the, the six of us would hop back into uh, three on each Zodiac boat. So there were some good swimmers. No, I couldn't swim. I know. I was going to say, Dave, what are you doing in this boat without yeah. a life jacket when yeah. you can't bloody swim? It's why you didn't join the Navy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't swim. So <laughs> they decided the three blokes would go in the first Zodiac boat and I'd be in the second one. There'd be only two in the uh, the last one. We had difficult getting the Zodiac boat over the big swell that was coming into the beach. And we counted the... Uh, counted the seconds between each wave. So we had an open window to get the Zodiac boat out and over the waves. So the first one got out and then it was our turn. And then um, this bloke called Gerbil and I hopped in. We, we pushed the Zodiac boat out. The third cow, he's pushing it out. We all hopped in. The two of us hopped in. The third bloke would be, he was a good swimmer. So he decided to swim out to the the two boats, but he would push us out. And the first time we tried to get out, it flipped. Oh, my goodness. But the second time we got out, okay. And Cal, a sw good swimmer, he he swam out to the two, two boats. He went under the water swells and got, he managed to get out. It took us quite a few hours to get back to the back to the um, base itself. And they thought there was something wrong. They thought there was a tragedy. We got back there and um, we were heavily burnt, exhausted, and uh, they made rules, different rules came in that there must be an observer or someone down at the base in future at Herd Point to win communication to let know that, about the weather conditions. So, but anyway, I nearly, nearly drowned there. So um, I came back to Australia and I decided to, this is my um, way to get out. I didn't want to go to, back to Rockhampton, so I applied for the next expedition. And this time I was supposed to go to Casey Base. I had put in an application. I was OIC of Macquarie Island Weather Station. So when I got back to Hobart, I, had, I got a debrief for about a couple of days. And... Um, I rank here and I got outstanding. I did an outstanding job. So I got an A. I would be on the next exhibition if I wanted. And I said, yes, I want to go down to Casey Base. So I filled out my application. I signed it. And they said, oh, we'll let you know when the, in a couple, six months' time, you'll be going to the tra training program. So I said, fair enough. And when six months came, I never heard. And someone rang me up and they said, Oh, the trainings began. We thought you were going down to the next, uh, to Casey Base. I said, yeah, I'm going. They said, no, the training program has already began. And I said, what? So I rang up the, I was upset. I rang up the um, uh, the chief admin officer at um, Anari. And he said, I said, I applied for um the next ex expedition. He said, yeah, oh, that's right, you did too. I said, the application I, I signed. He said, oh, yeah. Well, you weren't interviewed. So they look investigated and 
they found the um, the applications, someone had put it down at the bottom of the drawer and they found the application. Well, that caused a lot of problems because in the uh, public service, everyone has got equal rights and my application was already done. So um, with the unions got involved, they had to cancel the whole application and all the expeditions so that everyone got a fair go. So they made a deal with me. They said, okay, we'll send you to Davis Base on OIC wages, but you won't go down as an OIC, which was made me happy. No, no pressure, nothing. So yeah, I'll accept that to Davis Base. Uh, they put removed the junior, most junior officer off, and he was supposed to go to Macquarie Island. So they removed him, and uh, I went to Davis. They transferred a bloke from Davis to Macquarie, um, Macquarie and someone from Macquarie to Casey Base, and that worked out well. By the time I um, did training for the expedition and went spent my 12 months down on Davis, I was away from my family for 18 months. My children really didn't know me. Debbie was upset because I was leaving the family and she had to um, be like a father and a mother at the same time. So anyway, I, I had a wonderful time down at Davis. They offered me Casey Base a year later. Dave, I just want to ask you, what's the realities of living in Antarctica? Oh, peace, peace, quietness, nature, everything, beautiful, animals, you know. Not is many people can get down though? there. Not many. You know, is it very monochrome in terms of the black rock and then the white of the ice? Is that sort of yeah. just the monochrome nature of it? Yeah, yeah, it's just um, we were on the Vestfall Hills. Davis Base is virtually off the Vestfall Hills, which is just below the ice plateau. So the Vestfield Hills was a magnificent area. They had blue blue lakes in the summer, beautiful blue lakes, um, and like lunar lunar rocks, these grey big lunar rocks. And we were right on the coast. It was a magnificent um, posting, and um, and and it was a wonderful twelve months. I experienced winter down there with. 20 other people, 22 other people. Uh, it was isolated. The ship drops us off, and that's that's it for the next 12 months, uh, virtually, or six months before the summer program comes in. So we, we're virtually isolated for six months, you know. Uh, I spent 12 months down there a year. Do you need to do psych profiles to make sure yes. you're going to be able to get on to with the other people? Yes, that's it. And that's the funny part about it. That, I forgot to tell you that story because um, before I went down to on the first expedition down on Macquarie Island or Casey Bay, it was supposed to be Casey Bay, but I had to take a army psych test, which was connected with the Anari program, and and I went into the psych doctor, and um, he he saw my file, and he said, "I see you're a Vietnam veteran," and I said, "Yes." He said, "We've we've got bad reports about you, Vietnam veterans." And oh, lovely. Yeah, and I said, "Yes." He said, "Why are you suited? Why are you different from others?" And I said, "I I spent six months at Giles. I'm your best candidate for isolation." And he signed it off. I I took I took tests. I'm not aggressive to people. Mm. I'm a 
I understand people's moods and so so they they gave us different um um, no, I just wanted tests. from a personality. Yeah, I know. I, that, I just yeah, from, test you. yeah, they, they, yeah, because you don't want some, yes. you know, and dickhead they, down there, do you? Yeah, that's exactly right. And they they put someone in in the they try to test you in a group. They put you in a group, and there's one there's one psych in that group, and they test you out, and um, they find how you are, and um, I, I I was okay. I the, the other people, other applicants failed because they couldn't pass the psych test, but I passed mm. okay because I, I was suited for isolation. I, I, I wasn't a, I wasn't a person that would abuse other people. I, I'm, mm. I'm an easy sort of an easy type. I had my mental, mental problems, but I had them within myself. I wouldn't push them out to other people. Other words, mm. so I was a, I was a perfect candidate, and um, and yes, I'm glad you asked that question. Yeah, every time I went down there, I I passed the psych test every time. It wasn't it wasn't so much you passing the psych test. I just mm. wondered from a collective group whether or not they yeah. they do a like a, almost like a personality yeah. profile to see if you guys are going to mesh because it's so isolated yes, down right. there. Yeah. yeah, that that was that was where I was coming yeah. from. Not and, is Dave okay to be yeah. <laughs> yeah. with a group of people? That's right. Yeah, <laughs> I was okay, perfect. Um, there was at McCrory Island. We had a troublemaker. I didn't get on with him, but he was. Yeah. I wasn't the only one. But on Davis Space, we had a perfect team. Everyone got on with each other, uh, and and my next expedition was Casey. They offered me Casey Base, and. Um, so, I um, yes, I want to get into the accident at at, K- at Casey. Yes. Can we can we jump to there? Yeah. So I got I followed up my expedition from Davis Base. I came home for a, a four week period for holidays to be with my family. My family was shattered, absolutely shattered. They didn't want me to go, and because they need a father, and I was like a stranger to them, especially my children, and uh, but. They said, fair enough, Dad, this must be your last expedition, which it turned out to be. So I went, got did training for about four weeks or, or a couple of weeks, then I got on the ship down to Casey Base and got down there. And um, the first day at the base, we had a briefing with my, I was going in as OIC off the Met, Met office and had a briefing and we we went off the base a little bit slightly off the base and we got into um uh, he was showing me the base itself and 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 we got onto blue ice blue ice which was covered by snow light snow i didn't have any crampons on my boot or any spikes and he didn't and he slipped but he saved himself and I slipped and I hit my head and I was out to it. He went to he went back to get help and a a rescue team to get me back to to get me into uh, medical attention. And um, what had happened, I hit my head and with the force of the ice, my brain started to swell and bleed. And um 
well, if it happened anywhere else in Australia, I would have been dead, you know. But as my head was on the ice, it sort of gelled the bleeding and it's actually saved me life. Wow. And by the time they got me back into the base in the first medical room, I was out to it. I don't remember anything. They decided there and then they would medevac me back to Australia. And it was back on the major news service back in Australia. And I didn't know anything about it because I was out to it. A blizzard came in that evening, so they couldn't get me out that evening. Um, so the next day it cleared, the blizzard cl- uh, cleared. Luckily, the the Aurora, the ship Aurora, Australis, was still in the ice pack. So they sent a helicopter um, back into Casey Bay and medevac me out. I don't remember anything. Uh, and, and I came to... I came out of the coma out on the ship. I actually th- thought I was, I'd lost time and I actually thought I was on the ship going down to and to, uh, down to Casey Base. So I lost all that time. I don't, don't remember anything about Casey Base. And that's why I called it the curse of Casey. Um, three times I tried to get there and, and the third time I did get there, but I don't remember anything about Casey. So you're bleeding and you've got a brain swelling. What was the outcome of that injury? Uh, the ship doctor took me to put me on a helicopter on to get me out of the ship hospital to, um, um, to Macquarie Island. I spent a couple of hours on Macquarie Island, which was very, I was very happy to go back and revisit Macquarie Island. Although was, my head was like boom, 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 I was medically mm. doped up. But I do remember them flying me to Macquarie Island and resting me on Macquarie Island. But your brain swelling, I mean, the blood, the bleeding was... This, the brain had stopped swelling. Oh, okay. The brain had stopped swelling. And I was heavy. It was, this was about five days before the, after the accident. So right. my, they had stabilised me and they were getting me on my feet. So I was getting okay, but I was still doped up. And they took me on to Macquarie Island and I spent a few hours on Macquarie Island and then they brought me back again. I arrived back at Hobart. My family was there and it was the only the ship doctor that contacted my family. So, But my family flew down to Hobart from Queensland and they met me on the dock and I got admitted to Calvary Hospital in Hobart and recovered a couple of days in Calvary Hospital. But I wasn't allowed to fly home and I had to stay in Hobart for um, a week, I think, or two weeks. I forget how many times. But they wouldn't fly me home because the cabin, the pressurised cabin off the off the aircraft, they were scared that it would trigger, uh, trigger the um, brain injury. I eventually got back home and my family said, this is it, Dad. You have to get yourself seen to. We don't want you to go down to these isolated spots. Get to get yourself seen. Go to a psych and get proper, proper treatment. And this is what I did. I never returned to work again. I became very depressed with a my brain injury caused very much depression. It took me a good year to get over this brain injury, and on top of my PTSD trauma, it. It ignited 
once again, my, I wanted suicide again. Uh And, um, but anyway, a mate of mine came who was a Vietnam vet mate and he was living in Rockhampton and he, he virtually had a go at me and he said, get your act together. He said, you, you've achieved probably more than any bloke. You know, you've been, you know, your story is unbelievable. And he said, write your story down. Get get your brain moving. And this is what I did. I went back to um, to the psych doctor. They did counselling. I got in counselling programs, rehab programs, got me on medication, proper medication. Took me months to get on that. Uh, then I started to write my story, and um, and and that's virtually the story. I, I started um, rehab programs. They put me in Green Slopes Hospital with trauma programs, and and um, and it didn't work out all the way, but it did help me. I was they put me DVA Department of Veteran Affairs put me into a trauma program. Um, we shifted from Yapoon in Queensland. I never went back to work in Rockhampton. I sh- retired and I came back to Caloundra and um, re- sort of retired here. And um, and uh, they put me in different trauma programs. And I had a trauma program in a Coinda Mental Hospital with other veterans. And I was exposed to my trauma, what happened to me in Vietnam. I had to talk about it. And I couldn't go into remote or close space. So they tried to put me in a lift, heavy um, volume of people. I had a nervous breakdown. They thought I had a stroke, but- Wow. And, but it, was a, it, was a, it wasn't a stroke. I had a severe nerve reaction from the trauma. They had me in a trauma. It took six, I was in this trauma program for six months. So it didn't do me any good because I had to talk about what happened or to all this Vietnam thing. I had to write it down. I had to talk about it every, virtually every day. And they put me into lifts, food lifts, and I couldn't take it. So, so that's interesting because you said that it, it hasn't, it didn't help you talking about it. But yet, at the start of the program, you said writing and talking about yes, it helped. It helped you. me, but it didn't help me going into these lifts. Lifts, okay. Uh, and um, and I couldn't handle the lifts in the close space, and I still can't. And they were putting me into these crowded uh, lifts at the hospital, and then they started putting me in a small lift, food lift, and um, which was a, a smaller lift still. That ended up, I had a smear. They thought I had a um, had a, a stroke, right. but it wasn't a stroke. It was a nerve reaction. I ended up in hospital, and they said, no, it was a nerve reaction. And from that day, my eye closed, slowly twitched and closed. And I've lost my left eye now. It's it, it, um, it's closed completely up. Um, yeah. And uh, I get Botox every six weeks to try to open the eye, and it opens about 10% of, it's 10% of the time, and that's about it. That's all I get, and that's caused by a nervous pro, a trauma. I'm not the only. I found out other veterans have the same problem, and um, wow. So a lot of people don't know this, and um, so that's that's actually my story. So 
I wrote, I've written three books. The first book was Ice Journey about my time on the ice. Uh, it's quite an adventurous story. Um, my second story was my, my Vietnam War, Scarred Forever, which I wrote for my diary. I kept a diary in Vietnam, which you probably wasn't supposed to. And I wrote, a, wrote home every week to my mum and she kept those letters. And um, when I, um, when I, about eight years ago, I started reading those stories. It was very hard, but it. I wrote to my home and I, I to my mum, and she had numbered those letters from one to fifty-six. So I got, I decided to write my Vietnam story from those letters and diary. And this third book that just that's got released for the Invisible Trauma. It's um, it, it's about my how I coped with trauma, PTSD, oh, my feelings of of myself, and I didn't mention about how you know in my other book that I had sued my feelings when I was going to do myself in, and not only that, um, my family wrote their story, what it was like to having a father and a husband. And my so their stories in there, they got chapters. And was that hard? It was, was hard. that hard to read to what their opinion was? Yes, it was hard because I yeah. broke down, I broke down, and it affected my family. It was like throwing a rock into a pool and a ripple effect. It helped, it affected my wife and affected my um, my children. And after I read these, wrote this book, I get a lot of few letters from other veterans and they saying it's like my story it's mm. exactly like it's mirrored my story it mirrored my story and 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 um and not only this book i've got a doctor that uh who's from the Gallipoli medical research foundation she did a chapter on on cognitive behavior and mental health so she's got her um, piece in the book, and I've got five other veterans and their story. Um, uh, a couple of young lady doc, uh, lady veterans that went to Afghanistan and uh, and Timor. I've got a another veteran who did his story. He's a commando. He did his story in the book, so he tells how he coped with um, with PTSD. You can only PTSD will will be with you the rest. Of, of our, my life, and anyone mm. suffers from PTSD, there's no cure for PTSD. It's how you manage it. And um, Have you looked into some of the alternative treatments like the psychedelics and so forth that they do? Um, Americans run them in Mexico because of its laxer laws in Mexico. Have you looked into any of the low-dose um, psil psilocybins? Uh, they've, they've asked me about that, but, look, I, I think I've... I found I've discovered how I can cope better now. I exercise. Yeah. I go to the gym twice a week. I go to hydro hydrotherapy once a week. I look after Water Creek. I volunteered to do a Water Creek to take water measurements and all that, and do, take water samples. Um, I do that. I do all my gardening. I love going down to the beach, looking at the waves, and I, I've I've reinvented my self and coping a lot better i've got three little grandchildren um two in the uk i've got one in in brisbane here and that's really 
I'm coping very well now and I still get my nightmares. Yeah. I, I try to write one of the programs they taught you was doing IRT, imagery rehearsal therapy, which helps me by writing writing down a happy nightmare, uh, not not your own nightmare, writing down a happy nightmare, okay? So... I don't know that you could have a happy nightmare, but yeah, okay. Yes, I can. Okay. So I'm interested in, I'm uh, no, a firm believer no, I that. No, what I mean by happy nightmare, you experience that nightmare, but you turn that bad nightmare into a happy nightmare. But like my, I write down what I experience and then I write down a happy nightmare. And I right. read that happy nightmare before I go to bed. I write down a happy a dream that I'd like to dream. And, okay. And that helps me. Dave, I'm a big um, supporter of the, my philosophy has always been no matter what you think in terms of the wars at the end of the day, it's governments and politicians that put people there and you should always support the soldier and the, and the person on the ground. Very true, yeah. Um, has it been... Is there any resentment or is has it been trickier for you given your reception uh, that you received and others received that were veterans of the of Vietnam War compared to subsequent wars where they have been thankfully treated so much better? Has it is there a resentment there at all from that or no. No, no resentment yeah. because I've met I have so much in common with the younger veterans. I can talk yeah. to them and I yeah. feel I feel very happy that they are um, getting help and yeah. are looked up. Uh, we weren't, I would hate to for them to come back to Australia and experience what us Vietnam veterans yeah. experienced. Yeah. It was a terrible time. And, uh, it was, and, and I think for those that don't realise that it's only been, I think, the last decade that yeah. for any of the um uh, uh, memorial services where the sold past soldiers march. It's only been re- really the last decade that the Vietnam vets were actually invited yes. to march as well. Yes. It's um, yes. certainly a stain on Australia and, and many other nations in terms of how they've treated the veterans that have come yes. back from the Vietnam yes. War. But look, I'm, mm. I'm, I'm, I, I, get, I go down to Anzac Day and I feel I am accepted. Finally, I'm accepted. Yeah. And, um, yeah. And I learned that acceptance the first time when I was in Antarctica at Davis Base because the twenty, the twenty-two ex, other expeditioners, they the first time that I felt I belonged, they accepted me and they treated me, um, treated me as a like a hero, and I don't want to be a hero. I'm not a hero, but they accepted me. And before then, I wasn't accepted. None of us were accepted. But today, I go down every time Anzac Day or Vietnam Veterans Day, people clap me. They come up and mm. shake my hand, and finally, I feel accepted. And um, and and it's it's a good it's a good feeling. Finally, it's a good feeling that I've been accepted, and not a war criminal. You know, yeah. Well, treat it as a yeah. treat, treat it as such, even yeah. though you weren't. Um, to wrap it up, I have one final question. What happened to your sister? Yes, my sister. 
she came she, she came back um came back to australia she divorced that second husband good she um good. she never she never remarried she she um her family the, the children got disjointed although she got came back with the her whole family but she was a heavy smoker and she eventually died, she died eight, um, eight, eight years ago. Um, she had that um, emphysema. Emphysema, yeah. So mm. she choked to death, poor girl. But I, I, I feel she terrible. She had a terrible life, and and um, but she she died peacefully. That her four four children was around her, and uh, she made peace. Uh, with the children at the end the four of them was at my sister's bed bedside and she passed away peacefully and she left a body to four sides so it's a very sad story I'm still in touch with the uh, my three nephews and one niece but they struggle uh, particularly one boy struggles and I just feel how sad the whole pro the whole family how it's how it's suffered just because these uh bastards that uh, belted up yeah um uh, sister but it happens every I see it happening and it I that's one of the things that triggers me when I see it on TV things like that it it upsets me greatly I, I still I still question what life is all about to this very day. My twin brother, he did very well. He left the army. He became a high school teacher. He, you wouldn't believe his story is different from mine. And he became an inventor. Get out of town. Inventors. I had a program on the ABC Inventors, and he won the ABC Inventors of the Year award, and he won the Asian Inventor uh, and European inventors. His invention was called Conehead, and you can see his name, Morgan Don Morgan, Conehead, and um, he's um, he did very well. As I say, he was very academic than me. He was very brainy. He became a high school teacher, and um, he left high school teacher, and he he's got this invention all around the world today, and um, and um, it's. I'll have to go and Google it now, yeah. Dave. Uh, Google Don Morgan Conehead, and his story is amazing too. But a different story than mine. Mine was yeah. I don't know. I um, beat death a few times. So, well, quite a f- quite a few, and I yeah. think it's the universe is saying yeah. it's not your time. Particularly, yeah. I mean that locked door. I mean, how do you explain a lock yeah. that locked door yeah. on the train? And, I, and I so believe forth. someone's up there looking after me. Well and truly, Dave. Yeah. It's been such a pleasure. Yeah. Um and I'm glad that the Vietnam vets are now getting uh Treat, the help. recognition yes, and, and help fully. and and are, um yeah. acceptance yeah. within within society. Yeah. Dave, thank you so much. Um for those listening, if you wanna uh read Dave's books, Invisible Trauma, Ice Journey and My Vietnam War. So Yeah. And they you, you can get the um at, uh, online or uh, call it bookstores or request them in. Thank you very much, Fiona. I really appreciate no this. No worries, Dave. And thank no you for, your, for all. your hard work. Yeah. No problems at all. Yeah. 
Thanks for taking a moment to listen, everyone. We hope this episode inspired you as much as it did us. If you know somebody who also needs a little inspiration, then please share this podcast with them. Also, don't forget to subscribe on your fave podcast app and rate and review us because that helps inspire us to keep making them. 